Gracious Father, please uh, fill us now with your Holy Spirit, enabling us to receive what you have to say to us here this morning. Uh, Transform our hearts and our lives. Amen. Well, a few weeks back, my family and I spent a leisurely Saturday afternoon uh, doing the loop walk down at the Fernhill Estate at Mulgoa. It's a huge estate, uh, 400 hectares or so of fields, orchards, um, two-kilometre race course. It all backs on uh, to the Blue Mountains National Park and the Nepean River. And at the heart of it all is a grand 1842 sandstone mansion. As we wandered the grounds, it was fun to imagine ourselves in the days when the estate was thriving. You'd peer through the windows and imagine the chefs busy in the kitchen or a ballroom full of frocked up guests. Uh, You'd look down the hill to the racetrack and imagine a small crowd gathered together cheering on the horses. Apparently, Paul Keating used to say there, so I even had a moment sitting on a bench overlooking the valley, imagining uh, floating the dollar and deregulating the economy. But as fun as it was, I'm glad you laughed then, that was was a joke. I hope you laughed at home as well. But as fun as it was to imagine all of that, uh, it's pretty clear that its days as a living manor home were now dead and gone. The New South Wales government has bought it and will likely turn it into some kind of a function centre or a museum. So its days as a functioning home are behind it. Now, Fernhill is a picture, I think, of what can sometimes happen to churches. A once-thriving local church alive with the gospel becomes an empty shell. Its best days are in the past. Dotted throughout the Blue Mountains, there are lots of little weatherboard buildings that used to be churches or churches used to meet in them and they've now been converted into homes or cafes and the like. You'll see the little entry foyer sort of poking out the front and behind that there'd be a, a space, a hall where the people used to gather. Sometimes there's a little cross above the front door Now, we know the church is the people and not the building, and sometimes the reason why congregations have moved out of those buildings is because they've grown so big that those buildings could no longer house them. But nevertheless, they are a visual reminder that there used to be a group of people who gathered together Sunday by Sunday to engage with God, but no longer. And so you wonder, how could a once thriving church slide away into death. Well, today we're hearing Jesus' words to a church at risk of precisely that. Unless you take action, you will die. That's effectively what Jesus is saying when he warns of removing their lampstand there in verse 5. And so the stakes are high. But uh, thankfully, uh, this passage contains the solutions as well. The key to avoiding avoiding this slide, indeed, to thriving as a church. And we'll see what that key is in a moment. Now, as Liz said, this is the first of a seven-week series tackling the seven letters to the churches uh, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John, who himself, uh, chapter 1 tells us, had been exiled to the island of Patmos because of his preaching about Jesus. In the book, he describes a series of visions which 
which in the main uncover for us the spiritual reality of the world in which we now live, this time between Jesus' resurrection and his return. Revelation is what, what is called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic just means unveiling or uncovering. And it's characterised by lots of symbolism, beasts and numbers and white robes and all that. This kind of writing can be daunting, but with a bit of digging into the Old Testament or into the historical background, you can usually get to the bottom of what's being said. And it helps that the overall message of the book is pretty clear, that Christ has already been victorious at the cross. And so we can press on now through hardship, knowing that one day that victory will be fully and finally revealed to all. Now, the chapters that we're looking at in this series, they flow on from John chapter 1, from this vision that John has of Jesus himself at the end of that chapter. Jesus dictates to John seven letters, each of which addresses a different church in the ancient Roman province of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And Jesus gives us an assessment of how each church is going commending, correcting, encouraging, rebuking, and warning them. But these letters were not just for those churches. They also have an application to every church in this age between Jesus' resurrection and return. In Revelation, the number seven is particularly symbolic of wholeness or completeness. And so as Jesus addresses these seven churches, he's also speaking to the whole church at all times and in all places. And so the commendations, the corrections, the encouragements, the rebukes and the warnings there for us too. As we reflect on these letters, we ought to be asking, how does Anglican Church's Springwood, how does Factory Morning Church fare? And how have I contributed to that? They're the kinds of questions we've got to have in mind as we tackle this series. But today, Ephesus What's the key to avoiding that slide into death as a church? Well, the passage begins with Jesus instructing John to write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, which is the same way that he introduces each of the seven letters. Why to the angel rather than direct to the church? Well, I think the point is to remind the churches that their main existence is spiritual. Each local church is a spiritual body. It is possible that the angel here merely refers to a human messenger, perhaps um, the lead pastor of the local church. But everywhere else in Revelation, angels are spiritual agents by which God carries out his work. And so that's likely here too. And the letter proper begins with Jesus' self-description. Verse 1, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So here we have Jesus giving his credentials for evaluating the spiritual health of the Ephesian church. Now, this self-description is really less cryptic than it seems. It comes direct from John's vision of Jesus back there in chapter 1, where the symbolism is explained for us. Uh, 1 verse 20 says that the stars represent the angels of the seven churches. Symbolism that makes sense if you think of the Christmas story, you know, the the, the stars in the sky with angels. 
Uh, and uh, chapter 1, verse 7 also says that the lampstands represent the churches, which is probably based on the fact that lampstands in the Old Testament temple were one of the symbols of God's presence with his people. By gripping the stars in his hands, then, Jesus shows us that the angels are under his authority. They are his to send out. And the fact that he walks among the lampstands shows us Jesus' intimate concern and care for the churches. As a vintage car collector might walk among the cars in his garage, inspecting them and delighting in them and and polishing them up. All this means that when Jesus makes an assessment of a church, he's not just doing a cursory job. It's it's a thorough, 100% accurate assessment. He's not just the mystery shopper reporting on her one brief visit to the local franchise. No, his knowledge is thorough and intimate. He knows our hearts, our motivations, our sins and our strengths, and he knows them far better than we could ever know them. So what's Jesus' evaluation of the Ephesian church? Well, Jesus both commends and corrects them. He commends them for three things. Firstly, for their tireless toil. In verse 2, he speaks of their hard work, uh, which is related to the word that's translated, not grown weary at the end of verse 3. So they are a busy church. They're a hive of activity, ready to do the hard slog. Secondly, he commends them for their endurance through hardship. I know your perseverance, he says there in verse 2. And then in verse 3, you have persevered and endured hardships for my name. Elsewhere in the Bible, we hear of the pressure and persecution that had been inflicted on the Ephesian church. Acts 19 tells of a violent citywide uproar in the city of Ephesus, focused on the Christians because they had been leading people away from worshipping the goddess Artemis. The local silversmiths who made the little Artemis replicas were upset that the Christians were ruining their trade. And then in Acts 20, uh, it's not just uh, the Apostle Paul also speaks of the Jews. He speaks of the plots against him by his Jewish opponents. There's persecution coming from all angles. And presumably those pressures had continued in the 40 or so years um, that had since passed, since those days that Acts speaks of. But the church had stood firm. For the sake of Jesus' name, the passage says, they were not going to be cowed into submission, into renouncing Christ or going underground. Thirdly, Jesus commends them for their defence of the truth. Forty years earlier, back in Acts 20, Paul had warned the Ephesian elders to be on your guard since savage wolves would come in among the flock and distort the truth. And here in verse 2, we see that they had heeded Paul's warning. Have a look. It says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Then down in verse 6, we're told that just like Jesus, they hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, a group who are apparently attempting to win over the Christians to their distorted morality. So the Ephesians, they had been utterly scrupulous for the doctrinal purity of their church. They know the devastation 
that it could cause for them if the people were to be led astray. Now put these three commendations together and you have a church that I think most of us would admire. Hard work, patient endurance for the name of Jesus, zeal for defending the truth of the gospel. And though we all know that there is a but coming, it's worth pausing to recognise that these are characteristics of a church that we would do well to aspire towards. Would Jesus commend us for our toil? Or are we lazy in our work as a church? Would he commend us for our perseverance for his name amidst some of the social pressures of our day? Or do we just roll over, keep quiet and compromise to keep things polite? And would he commend us for our defence of biblical truth? Or have we allowed false, unbiblical teaching to creep in among us? Now, as you think these questions through, try to remember that you are Factory Morning Church. All of us, we are Factory Morning Church. There's not some other smaller core group over there or perhaps the staff team that make up the church. No, it's all of us. And so what role can you play in helping us to do better in each of these things? So the Ephesian church looks like it's thriving from the outside, but there is something rotten at its core. The Ephesian church is a huge spreading tree, but it's being white-anted from within and it's destined to fall unless drastic action is taken. And this is where Jesus turns as he corrects them in verses 4 and 5. Yet this I hold against you, Jesus says, you have forsaken the love you had at first. For all their commendable qualities, one thing is missing, love. And their slide into lovelessness is putting their very existence as a church at risk. It used to be there, but over the years it has grown cold. Now, different people have different theories about what kind of love we're talking about here. Is it love for God? Is it love for one another? Or is it love uh, for people more broadly? But the consistent message of the New Testament is that you can't actually untangle these things. If you have one, you have the others. And if you lack one, then you lack them all. For instance, John writes in his first letter, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. And then again, a sentence or two later... Everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. See, it's as we trust God for our salvation that the Spirit and the Spirit increasingly opens our eyes to the vast scale of God's goodness that we grow to love him more and more. The Lord is a precious jewel who we ought to treasure. And in loving him, well, we can't help but love those that he has loved as well. The people of his church who Christ bought with his own blood. The lost of this world who Jesus came to seek and to save. But at Ephesus, this had all but vanished. They're a dutiful, task-driven, empty shell of a church. An inner love for God is no longer their motivation. Instead, they're motivated by the outward demands of church culture. They've become Christian Pharisees. Their lips may honour God, but their hearts are far from Him. 
Perhaps as the years ticked by, the generations that followed began to take things for granted. I'm a Christian because, well, my family's a Christian and these are the things that Christians do. Brothers and sisters, we need to do all that we can to stop such a rot setting in. This kind of dead heart Christianity, you can never be sustained for long. Unless there's a healthy, growing love for God at the centre of who you are as a Christian, your faith is just going to wither and die. And Jesus says that a church like this will die. He will come and remove the lampstand. As I reflected, reflected on this passage this week, I've been particularly aware of what kind of a faith am I passing on to my kids? How can I guard against this generational slide? Because the last thing I want is my kids simply imitating the Christian behaviour and culture they've seen while their hearts are far from God. No, I want my kids to love God and so love others. As parents then, and as aunties and uncles and grandparents and friends... We've got to keep showing God's goodness to the next generation. His forgiveness and his grace, his generosity in giving all good things, the goodness of his ways. Well, having laid out the problem, Jesus then gives the solution. There in verse 5, there are three R's. Firstly, remember. The Ephesians had abandoned their love, but it wasn't always this way. Forty years earlier, the gospel had rung out across the Roman province of Asia. Such was their devotion to God. Thirty years earlier, Paul had written how he had not stopped giving thanks to God for their love for all God's people. And so Jesus calls them, verse 5, to consider how far you have fallen. Remember how things used to be in the days when you appreciated and marveled at God. And delighted to share him with others. It can sometimes be easy to write off our earlier enthusiasm for the Lord as just youthful exuberance. But mostly that's just an excuse, I think. Perhaps for some of you listening, today is the time for you to dwell on that previous season when your love burned bright. And the aim of this dwelling, the aim of this remembering is the second R there in verse 5. Repentance. With your conscience pricked, you repent. You turn your mind and your heart away from the loveless ways you have been thinking and acting and living and back towards God. And then you have the, th the third R. Resume. Do the things you did at first, Jesus says. Now, this, in some ways, is an unexpected part of the solution. If lovelessness is the problem, how can doing things be the solution? Well, think of a marriage. If a couple recognises that their love has grown cold, might it not be a good idea for them to remember the things that they did at first and to do those things again? Date nights, sharing common interests, little notes to one another, whatever it was. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, where you invest your resources, 
He was referring to money, but I think it equally applies to our time and our effort and our energy. Where you invest your resources, that's what you will love. Now, we usually think of it working the other way, that it's what you love that you then invest in. And the Bible would support that too. But the truth is, it's circular, or it's a spiral. What you invest in, you love, and what you love, you invest in. Now, what might those things be when it comes to loving God? In your seasons of deeper devotion to God, of greater delight in Him, what were the things that you were doing? How were you prioritizing your money, your time, your energy? Now, there could be many things, but you really can't beat the ordinary means of grace. Hearing from God in His Word, responding to Him in prayer, gathering with other Christians, giving money to gospel work, and so on. Now, Jesus' words to the Ephesians then conclude, as each of the seven letters done, with a call and a promise, verse 7. A call to hear, and then a promise that the victor will have the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the tree that Adam and Eve were banished from in Genesis 3 but which reappears in Revelation 22's symbolic description of the new creation. The tree that if you eat from it, you will live in God's presence forever. Well, that is the life that lies ahead for those who trust Christ and so share in his victory at the cross. And as a church, that promise ought to drive us beyond mere box-ticking busyness or cold orthodoxy. When we consider that eternity that lies ahead of us, how else could we be but a church filled with love for God and for others? I was reading recently an account of a revival that took place in the town of Dundee, Scotland, in 1839. The minister of the church, Robert Murray McShane, wrote this about that period. The word of God came with such power to the hearts and consciences of the people here and their thirst for hearing it became so intense that for nearly four months it was found desirable to have public worship almost every night. Such had the Spirit worked in these people uh, that people couldn't help but get together and hear the gospel and respond to God in joyful praise. Uh, apparently, sometimes these church services that they were having every night ran on until midnight because no one wanted to leave. Such was the love for God that, and for one another that was kindled during this time. And while four years later, McShane said he could think of some who he says had left their first love, he also wrote, Many there are among us who are filled with light and peace and are examples to the believers in all things. The church was still thriving. Uh, indeed, the whole town had been changed. Well, let's finish then by praying that in our generation, God, by His Spirit, would enliven this church and give us a renewed and enduring love for Him, for each other and for all people. Um, please join me as I lead us in prayer. Gracious Father, 
Help us today to hear and heed this warning to the Ephesian church. Fill our church with your spirit, such that we would love you with a love that flows out to one another and all people. And help us always to do those things which feed that love. Amen.